All right, would you please open your Bibles to 1 John, 1 John chapter 4, and verse number 16, 1 John 4, verse 16. Let's make sure the volume is okay, or can you folks, Michael, can you hear me in the back okay? Yeah, my voice isn't super strong today, this is about as good as it's going to get. Francois, a little bit up. All right, 1 John 4, verse 16, that sounds pretty good. Now, for how many of you was that the first time that you've sung all five verses to that song? Oh, wow, the majority of you. First of all, can I say it is an amazing love, isn't it? And it's a great question. And can it be that I should gain? is Is it possible to think that a God like him could love somebody like me with this kind of love? Now, a verse that is not in our hymn book, but I absolutely love, and which is really the main reason I put all five verses, verse four. Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. And then if you just let that picture play out in your mind. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. So here I am, locked up in that dungeon, in that prison of sin, God looked down on me in mercy and grace with that amazing love and here comes this radiant, glorious beam of light which the Bible says the glorious light of the gospel of Christ. It it diffused, it came in and this light shone in that prison. I woke the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth and followed thee. What What an amazing story that tells that's that's our testimony isn't it the the fine details of our story will be a little different but that's the general plot for all of us and then the end of verse five is actually going to play into the sermon today bold i approach the eternal throne and claim the crown through christ my own you're going to see how this plays into first john chapter four Verse number 16, if you would read along with me here, verse 16, the Bible says, and we have known and believed the love that God hath to us. God is love. And he that dwelleth in love dwelleth in God, and God in him. Herein is our love made perfect You can see the title of the sermon comes from that particular phrase. We're talking today about perfecting your love. Herein is our love made perfect that we may have boldness in the day of judgment because as he is, let that sink in for a moment, as he is, so are we In this world, that's a massive statement, isn't it? Verse 18, look at what it claims to be able to do. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casteth out fear, because fear hath torment. He that feareth is not made perfect in love. Let's bow our heads. Let's pray together, please. Father, help us this morning. Today, we want to 
we want to talk about the perfect love. And Father, not just your perfect love, but trickling down to us and perfecting our love. Please, God, this is a work that only you can do. I simply want to be a vessel to communicate the message, and therefore I beg you, please fill me with your spirit today. Please give all of us ears to hear, touch our hearts, and let us walk away changed for what you've shown us and what you've said to us today through your word. And we ask it in Jesus' name, amen, amen. Now this passage, I must admit, I approach this sermon with a little trepidation because I prepared this sermon about two months ago. I was ready Saturday night. I'd prayed over it. Sunday morning, early, early Sunday morning, I woke up. I just didn't have peace. I said, God, it's one of the only times I think I've ever prayed something like this. I said, God, I think you gave me that sermon, but I don't feel ready to preach it. There's, this passage is claiming to be able to do something tremendous. This, when properly applied, I believe could make a massive improvement to the quality of our lives. Massive improvement. And therefore, I, I, I tread lightly. I want to make sure that I fully comprehend it and that I can explain it and communicate to you the thoughts that God has given me on it. So I've taken my time in, in preparing this and going over and over. And even I'm sure if it's like any other sermon I preach, by the end of it, I'll look back and go, man, there's even more to it that I could have said. But this passage, if it is fully applied, I, I believe it can, it can completely revolutionize a person's life. Now, I need to make a couple statements just to lay some groundwork for this. This is a very obvious statement. I'm sure we'd all agree to this. Life is filled with pain, right? This, this is a common, this doesn't even need to be said because we know it through experience. But just in case you're wondering whether or not the Bible backs that up, the Bible says in the book of Job, man that is born of a woman is a few days and full of trouble. That sums it up nicely, doesn't it? Solomon, the wisest man in the Old Testament, he said this in Ecclesiastes. He studied life from a, a natural man's point of view. Here's his conclusion. Exactly. <laughs> that was his conclusion. Very well said. His conclusion was... <laughs> I did not pay that child to do that. <laughs> but I should tip the child because that was perfect. <laughs> Solomon's conclusion was all is vanity and vexation of spirit. All. That's a pretty big statement. I've given you a verse on your outline if you want to just let your eyes peek at it quickly. Psalm 84, 6. Do you see that? The first verse there? <laughs> this I, I didn't know, actually, the connection with this saying and this verse. But how many have, have you heard this saying, life is a veil of tears? Have you heard that saying? Life is a veil of tears. It's kind of an older English saying, but a veil of tears. Usually when somebody says veil, they're thinking of a curtain, much like the one behind me, and they spell it V-E-I-L or V-A-I-L. That's actually not the, the saying. The saying is life is a veil of tears, V-A-L-E veil of tears and v-a-l-e veil is the old english way of saying valley valley so life is a veil of tears where would they get that psalm 84 6 it's actually from the bible a lot of people don't know that 
It says in Psalm 84, please read it later, it's talking about a man who fears God, hopes in God. It actually talks about a person who loves going to the house of God. And then it says this about that man, who passing through the valley of Baca. Now that Hebrew name, Baca, Baca means tears or weeping. It's the veil of tears. It's the valley of tears. Who passing through the valley of Baca make it a well. The rain also filleth the pools. Do you understand the picture that David is painting for you there? Everybody in life is going to go through some valleys. There's going to be some tears. There's going to be some rainy days. But a man who loves God, fears God, hopes in God, loves the house of God, he passes through those valleys and makes the most of them. He takes the tears and fills the well. The rainy day, he says, we can at least fill the pool. He makes the most of life's pain, life's torment, life's punishments, life's problems. What if we could eliminate? Now, life is going to be filled with tribulation, right? Jesus said, in the world ye shall have tribulation, so we're not going to avoid certain problems and pains. Let's get that clear. But what if we could eliminate all of the unnecessary, unwarranted, unhealthy pains, fears, problems? What if we could get rid of all the unnecessary things like that? Is there anything we could do to, to, to actively cut back on all those unnecessary things? I believe in the passage we're going to find some, some answers to that, but I want to tell you a story that I believe illustrates this pretty well. A few years back, I was coaching the basketball team here at the Puck. And each year, we would go to the USA tournament, and we headed down to, how many of you know this place, uh, the University of Fort Hare? Are we familiar with that place? Yeah. So with the tournament was held there that year. So as I normally did, uh, I, I took a plane and hopped over to East London and, and then uh, we, my wife was with me for this trip. We rented a car and we were going to drive from the airport to Fort Hare, to, to the venue where we're going to sleep. In order to get there, I don't know my way around. I get in the rental car, get the GPS, I plug in the address, off we go. It's going to cut us through a place called Hogsback. Do you guys know Hogsback? I didn't know hogs back. That sounds very Southern American to me, hogs back. Going, going to a place called hogs back. It was 7 o'clock at night, so it's dark. Off we go. I'm following the GPS, right? Walking, driving by faith and less by sight. This GPS took us into the middle of nowhere. Literally nothing around. When we got there, there was one house, run-down little shack of a house. It was a shabine. It was not the guest house we were supposed to stay at. We drove into this, and I looked at Christina. I said, this has got to be the wrong place. And I looked that way down the road, the other way back. There was no street lights. It's a dirt road. I thought, whoa, man. Okay, let's Let's just get back to the main road. Let's keep driving. So she's plugging in a different address. Maybe we can, you know, find an you know, alt alternate route. We start heading down. As we're going down, there's no lights. It's very dark. And there's a suspicious bucky stopped on the side of the dirt road. And remember, there's nothing 
around us. So we're a little worried. We see a few men standing around. We thought, let's not drive past that. I thought that was a smart move. So we stopped, turned, did a three-point turn, turned the car around. And I know if I, ba- I could backtrack, but it would take almost an hour to get back to the main road. I thought, well, maybe we can try another alternate route. So remember, we've already burned through the first option. Our second option, there was a suspicious Baki. We're not going to go there. So let, let's try the third alternate route on the GPS. So we typed that in. Now, on a GPS, right, it just shows a little red line. And I thought, well, that's a short red line. That's excellent. Let's go that way. And that takes us to the guest house. So off we go. We turn down an even darker road, if you can imagine. And, and as we're going, one of the creepiest things that has ever happened in my life took place that night. A three-legged goat stumbled out into the middle of the road. I kid you, I'm not making this up. A three-legged goat, but then as we got closer, one of its eyes was gone. A one-eyed, three-legged, albino <laughs> albino goat completely white with a pink one pink eye and that thing ha 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 it stumbled out into the road and it stood there now most goats are afraid of vehicles especially ones as loud I, we were renting a Toyota Corolla so it's not a massive vehicle but you know I, I'm blowing the hooter and that goat would not move it just came towards us stood right in the middle of the road yeah right the staring down our car I thought Lord away with the unclean spirit away with the (laughs) I didn't know what to do finally the goat moved it it allowed now I I honestly in hindsight I think the goat was warning us don't go this way (laughs) we pressed on so as we get going we start to go through, a, you know, there's a bunch of trees and I start to feel a bit of an incline. But remember, it's dark, there's no street lights, so I don't know what I'm getting into. And I thought, well, it's a short red line on the GPS. Surely we'll be there soon. We begin to climb what I now know is a mountain in Hogsback Forest. This used to be a logging community, a logging area but it had been abandoned years ago, so the road had not been taken care of. We start going over it. It it was as if we were off-roading. Massive rocks, sometimes boulders, and I am maneuvering with a Toyota Corolla rented. And I'm... Then, as we're starting to go, the, the road is winding up one side of the mountain. We're going back and forth. I can only see about 100 meters ahead, and then there's another turn. Then it started to rain. It is now 8.30, pushing 9 o'clock, and we are going through the rain, up a hill, off-roading in a Toyota Corolla after being greeted by a one-eyed, three-legged albino goat. This was a bad night. (laughs) As we're going, we start to realize there's no way out of this because we cannot turn around. The rocks are too big. I cannot back up. If I try to, we'll slide down what I now know is a mountain because I would stop get out of the car and see, can the car clear this next rock? As I stepped out of the car, I realized there's a cliff right next to me. So I'm on the edge of the mountain, driving up winding roads, and I have no idea when this is going to stop. I know that my wife prays. She's a praying woman. But man, she proved it that night. (laughs) 
each time I get back in the car, she'd say, honey, do you see the road ahead? I said, I can't see around the corner. She said, but honey, what are we going to do? I said, we're just going to drive and pray. She said, okay, I'll pray. <laughs> and she was praying like an old-time Methodist, real, oh, God, please, oh, God, please. And around every turn, there was a supplication followed by an exclamation of praise, right? Oh, God, help us. Oh, praise the Lord. Oh, God, help us. Oh, praise the Lord. Round each bend we went, and it, I mean, it got bad. We went through at least an hour of this, rock after rock, and yeah, Avis knows. <laughs> I, I completely totaled that. The bottom of that car was messed up. <laughs> we finally, and I, I told Christina, I said, I, I don't, honey, there's a chance we might have to sleep out here because I don't think I can clear some of these rocks. She said, it's better to try and at least maybe we make it, because otherwise we don't want to sleep in the middle of nowhere. We had no phone reception for a while, so I couldn't call the basketball team to say, come and fetch us. We were stuck. You know what was the most terrifying part of all that? We could not see where this is going to end. We couldn't see around each turn. There was so much fear, and fear breeds torment. It tortures you, because you and especially the fear of the unknown. I don't know what to do. I don't know what's on the other side of the mountain. After I turn this corner, is that, the, is that the end of me? Will I be able to make it another 100 meters? I don't know. I couldn't see very far down the road. Oh, I can't tell you what a relief it was when we finally cleared a few massive rocks, turned one last time, and saw a nice cleared, it was still gravel, you know, dirt road, but it was cleared. That's where the logging community had moved to. We had come to the other side of the mountain and we made our way to the guest house. We arrived at around 10.30 that night. So obviously we survived it, but I learned that night that fear does have torment. Fear does breed torment. And I have found that the same is true in a lot of people's lives in a general sense. We're tormented by certain very scary questions. We look down the road of our life. We can't see sometimes a hundred days into our future. We don't know what to expect, right? We can kind of plan out things, but sometimes life throws you a curveball and an albino goat and rain and an <laughs> unexpected shabine and you just don't know a suspicious baki what am I going to do with this and do I choose this route should I go with the second choice what about the third alternate you don't know what to do and that fear it paralyzes you in life and it punishes you and it it makes life more difficult than it needs to be there's lots of different things that can scare us, but I, I think deep down, here are some of the questions that really terrify people the most. Am I enough? Am I enough? Is God happy with me? Is this the right way to live? Now, this is why people stay so busy. This is why people go to drinking. This is why people turn to drugs. Because if you pause long enough, if you pull away from life long enough and actually take time to think about these questions, you know what you'll get? You know where a lot of people get to? They get to an unsatisfactory end. They get to being stuck on the rocks and they can't see around the corner and they go, oh dear, I don't know how to answer this. 
I don't know if my life is satisfying to God. Am I the right kind of father? Am I a good dad? Am I a good husband? Am I a good employee? Am I a good pastor? Am I a good person? Stop and think about that. So I got my opinion. How do you know it's right? Really think that through. Do you see how people can develop kind of a hard attitude towards this? They come to this conclusion and say, well, nobody can really know. But the Bible tells us that we can know the answers to these things. And there's something deep down within us that even though people say, well, no one can know, something deep down isn't satisfied with that. Because we know there's another turn. We know there's something on the other side of that mountain. And I'm going to face it one day. Even if in this life I don't face it, one day after I die, I'm going to face the other side of the mountain. I'm going to stand before God and all of these questions will be answered. So you can put it off and put it off. And you know how some people do it. They say, well, there just isn't a God. And I have found in, in a lot of cases, not all, but in a lot of cases, the reason they've come to that conclusion, it's because they were scared by these questions. I believe that what we have in this passage can actually offer some answers, some satisfaction, some boldness, some confidence, and take away this unnecessary, unwarranted unhealthy fear it's not going to eliminate all the problems in life but it's going to eliminate this paralyzing fear so that as you go through the valley of Baca you can make the most of it let's let's just walk through the verses one by one I want to make sure we understand them and then I'll give you three quick points verse 16 it says and we have known and believed the love that God hath to us Two parts to this. We have known the love. Can I just ask you quickly? Has anyone ever explained the love of God to you? Can you confidently, confidently say, I know what the love of God is about? In case no one ever has, can I just quickly introduce it to you? In verse number 10, John gives us the answer. Herein is love not that we loved God but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins a propitiation is a a satisfying sacrifice right a payment if you will so if you want to understand love the the greatest manifestation of it was given at the cross when God sent his son to pay for our sins but but listen you've heard that before but take it one step further it's not as if we deserve that. God didn't do that for a bunch of friendly, nice, well-deserving people. The Bible says, but God commended his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Not when we were at our best, but we were at our worst. And God still stepped in and said, let me show you just how much I love you. You deserve to die and pay for your sins but I don't want to see that happen. I want you to walk with me. I want you to love me. I want to have a close-knit relationship, not just now, but forever. Let me send my son and make a way for the greatest achievement in life, that is walking with God. I'll make that possible. Therein, the love of God was manifested to us. Now, now that's where you learn about it. It says in verse 16, we have known and 
believed. That's another step to it, right? It's one thing to know about it. Say, okay, I understand the, the concept. I owe a debt. Christ stepped in and paid the debt for me. That was incredibly kind. But when we talk about believing it, now this is, an, this is something deeper. This is you accepting what Christ did. Here's the difference. Ladies, the man comes to you and says, you're the greatest thing I've ever seen. You're the most beautiful woman that's ever touched the face of the earth. I love you with all my heart. He gets down on one knee and says, I want to spend the rest of my life with you. Will you marry me? You have known his love. When you say, yes, I have now believed it. Do you see the difference? It's one thing for him to profess it and make it available. It's another thing for you to accept it and be a part of it. This is what Christ has done. He came, he died. He says, I'm making it available. This is how much I love you. Just here. Now, every individual sinner needs to go to the cross and say, I will let that love penetrate my heart. I will let him love me. I will let that love in. I'll let that change me. I will do more than mentally consent that it happened. I'm going to let it become a part of my life. Have you personally believed it? Have you accepted it? The next part of verse 16, it says, God is love. So John has defined who he's talking to. He's talking to people that have heard the gospel and believed it. And now he's going to tell us something about God's nature, about who God is. God is love. What kind of being is he? This is not the whole story. God is not only love. You see, that's not what the verse says. It doesn't say only love, but this is certainly a very important part of God. God is love. Please be careful. Don't turn that phrase around. You cannot turn it around. You cannot say love is God. That's not true. Love is not God because then you're limiting God to just one thing, one attribute. There's so much more to God than just love. But if you want to know the God of the Bible, You have to understand this love. God is love. Why do we need to know this about God? The last part of the verse. And he that dwelleth in love dwelleth in God and God in him. What what evidence can a person show that would prove they do know God? That they actually have a relationship with him and that they're walking with him. That person would be walking in love you would see God in that person. But what is God? God is love. So when you see love in that person, you see a bit of God in that person. Which begs this question. Let me ask you to think this through with me. Are Christians the only people capable of love? I'm going to say no. I know some people that would argue that and say, well, only Christians can truly love. I don't don't agree with that. Let me explain why. All humanity was created in the image of God. And therefore, I believe, as God is love and we're created in his image, we are capable of love. But I also know this about the image of God, that it was broken by sin. So I'm going to take my explanation one step further and say that the love that humanity is capable of will be a broken form of that original love. It will not be the pure, perfect love that God is and that God intends for us to to live by. It will be a broken, and watch this next word, partial 
love. Not the perfect or complete love that we can achieve through Christ in God. So I think that even in a non-Christian, even an atheist who denies God's existence, he, he can deny it all he wants, but he's still created in God's image and therefore capable of a certain amount of love. Now in just a moment, we're going to talk about this perfect love, and I believe when somebody gets saved, they can achieve perfect or complete love because in Christ, the image of God that Adam lost in the garden is restored. You see, when we receive Christ, that image of God gets built back into us. We are conformed back to that image. So this love can be perfected. We'll, we'll come to that. Let's get verse 17. Herein is our love made perfect. Herein what? Right, that's actually two, two Greek words that they put together. Herein is our love made perfect. Well, in what? It's actually in the explanation at the end of the verse. So it's in this statement. Because as he is, so are we in this world. All right? What is God? He is love. So as he is, what is God? God is love. As he is love, so are we in this world. So what are we in this world? Love. We are supposed to be a manifestation of God's love in this unloving world. In this world that will surround us, try to bring us down, try to overcome us, we are able to overcome the world through this perfect love that God is trying to work out in our lives. Look at chapter 5, verse 4. Just let your eyes go across the page. Chapter 5, verse 4. It says, For whatsoever is born of God overcometh the world and this is the victory that overcometh the world even our faith when we live out what we believe we're able to have victory overcome walk in this world with boldness and confidence we can just as God is we can live like him in this world this is exactly what Jesus taught us to do. Let me, I'll refer you to the outline. I've given you the verses there. John 13, verses 34 and 35. Jesus said, a new commandment I give unto you, that you love one another as I have, as I have loved you, that ye also love one another. Do you see in that John's statement, because as he is, so are we? Do you see that? As I have loved you, now love one another. Jesus said, by this shall all men know that ye are my disciples. Because, he says, or if ye have love one to another. How do they know? Because I've memorized a lot of verses in the Bible. No. Because I can prove everything I believe right from the Bible. No. Because I pray more than, no. Because I give more money. No. Because you actually love them. And they're getting to see a little bit of God in you. Maybe a lot of God in you. Jesus said this is how they're going to know. When Jesus says by this shall all men know. Do you know who he's referring to? All men. That's the world. That's how we overcome. Be not overcome of evil but overcome evil with good. And the greatest good we're going to accomplish is perfecting our love through Christ. 
verse 17, back in chapter, uh, forgive me, I wanna show you Paul, Ephesians 5, I put it on the outline, I'm sorry. Ephesians 5, verse one and two. Be therefore followers of God as dear children and walk in love as Christ also loved us. Do you see the expectation of Paul? The love that Christ has for us, we are to walk in that same love. That's a very high standard, isn't it? He's not asking you to perfect your version of love, to, to use a human standard for it, saying the love that Christ had, that's the love you manifest one to another. That's a massive standard, but possible, but possible. Let's keep moving. Chapter four, verse 17. Herein is our love made perfect that we may have boldness in the day of judgment. So this is one of the reasons we want to perfect our love so that we can have boldness in the day of judgment. That's a big deal. Imagine how this would just completely renovate your life if you knew one day when I stand before the judgment, I have nothing to fear. That's a massive weight off my shoulders, right? I know what's around the turn. Even though it's a dark world and a bumpy ride, as I turn the corner, it's going to be okay. If I just knew it'd be okay, I can make it over the rocks much easier. That albino, one-eyed, three-legged goat doesn't bother me so much because I know he's just a momentary blip. I'll get past him. If If I knew there was a way to stand before God with confidence... Now, in order to to achieve that, first let's understand the day of judgment. You know, in the Bible, not everybody goes to the same judgment. For those that have never accepted Christ, your judgment will be at the end of time. The Bible describes it in Revelation 20 as the white throne judgment. You stand before God, the books were opened, another book is opened, which is the book of life, And it says the dead will be judged by everything written in the books. You are writing your own autobiography. Everything you think, say, and do is being recorded and one day it will all come out. God on that day is not going to weigh your good versus your bad, which is how a lot of people vision the judgment. Do you see why that would be a scary thought? Have I done enough good? How many bad things have I done? I don't even know what's good or bad. How do I judge that, right? It gets terrifying when you actually stop long enough to think about it. God's not going to weigh good versus bad. It's worse than that. God on the day of judgment, like any courtroom in any country, he looks for innocence or guilt. Now that simplifies this judgment a lot. (laughs) Because when you put it like that, well then, klar, it's finished, I'm guilty. The Bible says in Romans 3, that's what the law was given for so that the whole world would stand before God with their mouth shut and have to say, I'm guilty. There's, nothing, there's no excuse. I have nothing I can say for myself. I'm guilty. Now, for those that turn to Christ and receive him as the sacrifice or the payment for their sins, they have a different judgment. The Bible describes it as the judgment seat of Christ. And, and for those that are saved, you, all of your sins have been washed away the, by the blood of Christ, but your judgment... Is, is an inquiry into this. What did you do for Christ after he saved you? What did you do with this grace, with this opportunity of, of God's love being manifested to you? And there you can either receive a reward 
or the Bible says you can suffer loss. It also says you are going to be saved. You do make it through the judgment, but you might make it through that judgment with a great deal of shame and embarrassment. And this, I believe, is what John is trying to help us avoid. You can actually go through life without fearing whether or not you're going to have God's approval at that judgment, or even now, you can know if God is happy with you. Now, I know a lot of Christians that really struggle with this. They try their utmost. They do everything that they know to do. They read, they pray, they minister, they, they try to help folks. They're as kind as could be. They do more than what is expected. And yet, they, they go home and go, is that enough? Is that enough? Is that enough? If I could please beg you to wrap your heart around this passage and accept that you perfecting your love is enough. God's happy with that. Let me show you chapter 2, 1 John 2, verse 28. John tells us this. And now, little children, abide in him. What, what does John mean when he says abide in him? You're saved, but now you need to continually walk with him. It's not a once-off moment where you meet Christ, shake his hand, and go off about your life abide in him you walk you walk in love you don't jump into it and then jump out and then jump <laughs> you walk in love little children abide in him that when he shall appear we may have what we may have confidence we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming Take your Bible, look at chapter 5. I want to give you another verse on this confidence. Chapter 5, verse 13. These things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God, that ye may what? That ye may know that ye have eternal life and that ye may believe on the name of the Son of God. John says, I'm writing this short epistle so that you guys can know it. I want you to have confidence. I want you to have some boldness. I don't want you to go through life scared of what God thinks and is God gonna hate me or love me? I want you to know. Look at the next verse. And this is the, what's the next word? Confidence. And this is the confidence that we have in him that if we ask anything according to his will, he heareth us. Wouldn't it be nice to have confidence in your prayer life? What if there was something we could do to improve the quality, not just of your prayer life, but of your entire life? And I believe we have that in what we're studying today, perfecting our love. Come back to chapter 4, verse 18. So this confidence, this boldness is possible. Now, now verse 18, there is no fear in love. I do not intend to add to the Bible. Please do not take this like this. I'm just going to try to clarify the statement. There are other verses that would bring this out. Just for the sake of time, let me, let me try to fill in a blank or two. There is no unhealthy fear in perfect love. Right? Now, this you can see in the passage, I believe, and there are lots of other verses that would back that up. When it says there's no fear in love, if you perfect your love, you should still fear God. Do you understand? There is a healthy righteous fear uh, just because you have perfect love does not mean you can step into oncoming traffic with no fear right I'm not afraid of a car hitting me you should be 
if you have any intelligence, right? If somebody's pointing a gun at you, yeah, there's a, there's a reason to have a little bit of concern. Now, maybe not eternally, but, you know, I'm not sure what's going to happen after he pulls that trigger, you know, with every other part of my life, my family. So there's going to be some natural, normal fear. But unhealthy, unwarranted fear. There are some times that we fear God unnecessarily. We're afraid that God's going to do things to us that he is not going to do. We're afraid he's unhappy with us when he's not. And perfect love will remove that unnecessary, unhealthy fear. It says in verse 18, there's no fear in love, but perfect love, perfect love, you see, he qualifies it, casteth out fear because fear has torment. You could translate that as punishment. It punishes you through life. He that feareth is not made perfect in love. So whatever, to whatever degree you still, still fear, that is the same degree to which you need to perfect your love. Does that make sense? You can almost think of it as a, like a bit of a meter. The, the, the more love you get, the more of the perfect love, the less of the fear, right? The less of the love, the more of the fear. So it, it's on a sliding scale. There are some degrees to this. Now, I've heard this before. People say the only perfect love is the love that God has to us. So as long as you know that God loves you, then you have nothing to fear. Um, here's the problem with that. Number one, practically, that doesn't work because I've known lots of people that say, yes, God loves me. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so, but I'm still afraid. Right? So practically, I, I, I don't think that statement works. Furthermore, it doesn't say in verse 17, herein is God's love made perfect. It says herein is our love made perfect. So this isn't a matter of God's love toward me and now I've accepted it. This is a matter of your love getting perfected or completed and then you can experience this boldness, confidence, this lack of fear. John says we need to perfect our love. Now, I believe all he's doing is emphasizing something that Jesus commanded. Matthew 5, I've given it to you on the outline again, verse 48. Be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father which is in heaven is perfect. Now, a lot of people just take that verse away from its context and try to understand it separated. I, I believe you need to take it within the context in that sermon, Jesus said a few verses earlier, love your enemy. Pray for them that despitefully use you. Remember that? Love your enemy. Pray for them. Bless them which curse you. He says, listen, if, if, you're, if somebody treats you well and then you love them back, you're not, you would expect that. But the guy who abuses you and you still treat them kindly, that is God-like. Because that's what God does. He's merciful to the just and the unjust, to the good and to the evil. He is still able to manifest the proper kind and appropriate love. And then Jesus gives this command, be ye therefore perfect, be complete. In what way? In how you love people. Be ye therefore perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. So John is simply uh, teasing out what Jesus has said. He's, he's explaining it in more detail. I want to give you three things today about perfecting your love. This is point number one on your outline. Number one, what does it mean to have 
perfect love. A perfect love is, first of all, this, a comprehensive love. It is a comprehensive love. Now, when I say comprehensive, I mean you need to love all the necessary things slash people at the same time. Now, that's a simple statement, but there's a lot to that. You, you need to love different people and different things properly at the same time. So comprehensive. It, it needs to cover everything. You cannot, if it's going to be perfect love, just love one part at a time. You have to have, there's three parts to this. So if you want to maybe put these next to number one on your outline, three parts. Number one, you need to love God. Just look at verse 19, you'll see it there. We love him because he first loved us. So this is obvious, right? You know this. We're supposed to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. Now, you would think that that's enough, but it's not. That's just one part. Love God. Number two, love your fellow man, part two. Now, that breaks down into two subparts, friend and foe. So you need to love your brother, yes, but also, also the barbarian. You need to love them both, friend and foe alike. Look at verse 21. This commandment have we from him that he who loveth God, that's step one, love his brother also, there's step two. So if you're gonna have perfect or complete love, you gotta love God, but then you also have to love your brother. And Jesus takes it a step further, even your enemy, right? You gotta love the enemy as well. That's a tall order, isn't it? Think of that person at work that gets on your nerves the most. Now think of how you can love them tomorrow. Just, you see the reaction I'm getting? People go, <laughs> it, it sounds easy, doesn't it? As I say from the pulpit, yeah, 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 I love your enemy. Yeah, yeah, I get it, amen, amen, amen. Okay, go do it tomorrow. And all of a sudden, a three-legged, one-eyed albino goat right, comes at you. What do I do with this? Part three. You said, but wait a minute, Brother Mike. Loving God and loving people, that's it. What else is there to love? That's all there is. That's, those are all the important beings there are. There's one other component to have comprehensive love. Truth. You have to love the truth. The Bible talks about this in many places, about loving the truth. Say, so what is truth? Truth is whatever God has revealed to us. But let me show you the emphasis in this epistle. I don't want you to miss this. This is crucial. Chapter 5, verse 20. Chapter 5, verse 20. And we know that the Son of God is come and hath given us an what? understanding listen the, the love of God walking with God being saved being a, a Christian is not an irrational illogical thing it's not something where the preacher just says it and you have to do it whether or not you understand it Jesus came and explained it to us and gave us an example a living example of what perfect love is all about so that we could understand it he says, we know that the Son of God has come and hath given us an understanding that we may know him. That is what? True. And we are in him that is? 
true even in his son Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. Do you see the emphasis? He wants you to know the truth. You need to not just have a God, not your version of God, the true God. Do you see that? Look at chapter 2, verse 27. And to be honest, I'm, for the sake of time, I'm compacting this. You could start at verse 18 and go all the way down to verse 27. It's all about watching out for antichrists, plural, people that are spreading a lie about Jesus and giving you a false Jesus. In verse 27, he's talking about the Holy Spirit. Verse 27 says, but the anointing, that's the Spirit, the anointing which ye have received of him abideth in you, and ye need not that any man teach you, but as the same anointing teacheth you of all things, and is truth. The Holy Spirit is truth, and is no lie, and even as it hath taught you, ye shall abide in him. Jesus in John 16 he referred to the Comforter as the Spirit of truth and said that he will guide us into all truth. So in order to have perfect love, it needs to be comprehensive. You need to love God. You need to love your fellow man, friend and foe, and you need to do it according to the truth. You need to love the truth. Look at chapter 4, verse 1. You'll see it again. Beloved, believe not every spirit. But try the spirits, whether they are of God, because many false prophets are gone out into the world. Not every preacher is going to be telling you the right thing about God. So therefore, don't believe everything that you hear from the pulpit. Test it. Test it. Verify it. Do you see how logical this is? Look at verse 6. We are of God. He that knoweth God heareth us. He that is not of God heareth not us. Hereby know we the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. We can tell the difference. Why? We love the truth. We don't like to be lied to. We need all three parts. You need to love them properly at the same time. Then and only then can you say, I have achieved perfect or complete love. I want to make sure we understand loving truth. I want to clarify that. Loving truth does not mean you love being right all the time. That, that's a proud, arrogant state. You don't want to achieve that. Loving truth is not about being right. It's about being willing to come right. Somebody that loves truth is hungry to learn. He or she does not mind being corrected. They don't mind admitting, wow, I, I didn't understand that completely. I had that wrong. I'm so glad you've shown me. Now I know better. So please don't confuse loving truth for being this hot-headed, haughty, arrogant. That's not what I'm suggesting at all. But you love and appreciate the correction that God can give you. Guys, let me give you some hypothetical scenarios. If you love this and not this, here's what would happen. Here's some reasons that you should still fear. If you love God but you don't love the true God, you're obviously going to turn that corner of life, step into the judgment and go, wow, this was not what I was expecting. There's a reason to fear, right? So you got to have God, but you also need truth. So you see the combination. If you love man, but not God, well, 
That might work for a few years while you walk through this world, but eventually you're going to turn the corner and stand before God, and he's going to say, now what about our relationship? See? So humanism is going to fall short eventually. We were not created simply to love each other. We were created to have a relationship with God. Until that is satisfied, something is missing from your life, and you will know it deep down. There will be a constant source of fear. What if you love God but not man? Quite a few people like that, and most of them go to church. Amen. You say, I love God, but people get on my nerves, and I can't stand to be around anybody. You become a highly religious jerk, (laughs) and God doesn't approve of that. That's not the attitude you're supposed to live with, and one day God will make you answer for that. There's a reason to fear. You say, I love truth. I love truth, but I don't love man. Here's what's going to happen. I'll use whatever truth I learn to prove everybody else wrong so that they know I'm right. And I won't use the truth that God's taught me to help anyone. Do you see how out of balance that is? You have reason to fear. You say, but I love people. But don't love the truth. What's going to happen then? You'll become overly agreeable. You'll become a doormat. You'll offer people a false sense of security because no matter what they say or do, you will affirm their behavior. You will pretend as if they're okay and doing right. And therefore, you're really not helping them. You're actually hurting them because you're afraid of them. The fear of man brings a snare. You have reason to fear. Do you see how if one component is out of place, then there is still going to be fear. If you can mix all three together, God, man, and truth comprehensive love you can love God you can love fellow man and you can do it the way God told you to when you get to the day of judgment God says why did you do this because you told me to I treated them the way you instructed me then you have nothing to fear it removes that fear number two on your outline perfect love how do we define it what does it mean Number two, complete love's cycle. Complete love's cycle. I want to say that there's an order to how love works. You can't start from whichever point you pick. You have to act, it starts at one place and one place only, and then it trickles from there. So where does the ball get rolling? Actually, verse 19, uh, chapter 4, verse 19 kind of told us We love him because he first loved us. Do you see there's an order to this? If he says first, then there's a second and a third. There's an order to it. So there's a cycle. It starts like this with God creating us and then loving us. We recognize that love he has to us. Now for 4,000 years, God manifested that love by providing for mankind by speaking with him, revealing things to him. But then when Christ came, Christ was the greatest manifestation of God's love that the world will ever know. Right, so God manifested his love to us. Then once somebody knows it and believes it, they should reciprocate that love back to God. So that's step two. God loves me. And now I show that same love back to him, the love that he's worthy of. Tall task. Step three, right? God loves me, one. Step two, I love him back. Step three, now I'm gonna take that love that God has taught me about and I'm gonna manifest that same love to others. God loved me, I reciprocate. Step three, I manifest that love. 
I think maybe we could separate that step into two. I manifest it to my brethren. I manifest it even to my enemy, right? Because those are two separate groups. Now, this cycle, the whole time, no matter which phase of the cycle you're in, it requires truth. I have to truly know what God has done for me. I have to truly know what God expects in, in worship, right? Because he, he wants us to worship him in spirit and in truth. So the whole time, I'm doing all of this according to the truth. You don't need to make up things that God will do for you. God has promised us so many wonderful things. Just accept the promises that he's made. You don't need to add on to them. In order for this cycle to be completed, watch, it's not as if you go around and you say, okay, God loves me, I love God back, I love my brethren, and I do it according to the truth. Full circle, done. This circle just goes on and on. The cycle, right, we're walking. We're not jumping into the cycle, jumping out of the cycle. We just continue this cycle. Have you ever heard of perpetual motion? It's kind of one of those scientific thingies that really doesn't exist, right, but that people like to... I've heard so many times people says I figured it out perpetual motion perpetual motion is called God <laughs> God is perpetual motion he's the energy that keep by him all things consist right? so God if you achieve perpetual motion you've you've achieved Godhood but let me say this as God, if this cycle is going to perpetually continue right what God does is he keeps infusing you with more truth and the more you grow and learn about God the further the cycle goes because right we sing the song oh the deep deep love of Jesus so the deeper you go into God's love the more you understand him and and how to relate to him the more love you're able to manifest towards your brother and the more you see how this love affects them and the more peace and joy and lack of fear, right, and confidence and boldness it builds in your heart, you, you know that God is approving because God does commend us. God will give you the thumbs up. God, to put it in South African terms, will say, shop in your heart. <laughs> he does, he does. You say, Brother Mike, that's not biblical. Yes, it is. Romans 5, the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost which is given unto us. Jesus said that when he, the spirit of truth, is come, he will guide us into all truth. That is not a once-off event. It's not as if on the 3rd of August, 1996, the Holy Spirit showed up in my life, said, here, Mike, here's a little bit of truth. And I go, okay, that's all I need to know. Done. Each day as you walk in love, as you walk with God, you have a chance to go deeper, learn more about him. The more you learn about him, the more you learn about love because God is love and once you learn more about that you can show more of it to the people in your life you see what a great effect it has and it makes you want to love more and it just perpetually keeps the cycle going right so when I say complete love cycle I don't want you to think that the cycle will ever stop but you you don't want to stop the cycle with okay God loves me that's enough no no take it to the next step show love back to God now show it to your brother now keep learning now love God more now love your brother more keep learning more and it just goes round and round and round as soon as you say okay I've been walking in love for 10 years that's enough I've done enough I've done my part everybody else should do their part now the cycle stops 
right? Entropy in a closed system. That's why we don't have perpetual motion. That's science. I sound smart. (laughs) Everything crashes to a halt and all of a sudden something in you says, ooh, that's not right and fear creeps in. Why? The, The love is no longer complete. The cycle is not being completed. Number one, comprehensive love. Number two, complete love's cycle. Number three, confess and carry out your love. Confess and carry out your love. Chapter 3, 1 John 3, verse 18. May I read just a couple verses with you? This, this last point I'm not going to take long on because it's actually point 2, sub point A. I mean, it, it, this is part of the cycle. But John took a few verses to spell it out. I'm going to take a few verses to spell it out. 1 John 3.18, My little children, let us not love in word, neither in tongue, but in deed and in truth. John is not forbidding us to tell somebody else that you love them. It's not wrong to say to your friend or even to your enemy, be warmed and filled. As long as that's not the end of your action. Just saying it. So if that's all you're going to do is talk about it, probably better not to talk about it because you're just building an expectation that never gets realized. But what John is getting at, if you're going to confess it, go ahead and carry it out to its full conclusion. Do you see how this is kind of like completing the cycle? But it's worth pointing out because I think what happens many, many times for well-meaning people is we confess, yes, God loves me. I've accepted it. I know Christ. Do you realize what you're confessing? Do you realize how big of a confession you've just made? As soon as you've made the statement, I believe in God. That's a massive statement. How can that not take it to the next step? Okay, if you believe in God, then how do you know him? How do you know that? If, if, God, if God can be known, how do you know him? And if he can be known and you know the method to know him, then why are you not knowing him more and more? If, if God is so great, why, why would you not want to know him more and more? Do you see how this, once you profess one thing, the only logical thing to do is to carry it out all the way. So many times we get stuck in this mentality. I, I heard the sermon, I'll come forward, pray a few prayers, say, oh God, that was, that was what I needed to hear, this is what I need to do, God, help me from this point forward, and that's where it stops. It sounded good at the altar, and you made some decisions in your heart, maybe you didn't even say the words out loud, the words didn't even escape your mouth, the words just resonated in your heart, love is not complete You'll feel good in the moment that you're making that decision, but as you go through the rest of your day, the rest of the week, you'll know I'm not living up to that decision. And you won't have peace, you won't have joy, you won't have confidence, but fear. I'm not living up to my word. All of us knows this deep down. Jesus said, by your words you shall be justified, and by your words you shall be condemned. 
because every idle word that men shall speak, they shall give an account thereof in the day of judgment. Every promise, every confession, every profession, I believe this. God says, on the day of judgment, you said you believed it. You said you would do this. Now see, we said it in passing. We didn't think it all the way through. God expects us to carry that out. If we're gonna say it, we need to be careful to do it. Watch verse 19. Hereby we know that we are of the truth and shall assure our hearts before him. Do you see that assurance, confidence, boldness? Do you see it? Verse 20, for if our heart condemn us, God is greater than our heart and knoweth all things. You might have doubts. Here's what happens. People come forward. Oh God, save me. Christ, I give you my heart, my life, my soul. Please save me. Then they go out and they don't live out their faith. They made a good decision, but there's no evidence that that love has changed them. So you know what? God knows their heart, but they don't. Their heart will begin to condemn them and say, hey, you said this, but you're not living it out. And they will doubt whether or not they're saved. They will be tormented by the question, did I do it right? Am I enough? Am I gonna pass the day of judgment? Verse 21, look at what can be accomplished. Beloved, if our heart condemn us not, then have we what? Confidence toward God. How do we achieve that confidence? Perfect love. What's perfect love in the passage? Don't just say it, do it. Don't just confess it, carry it out. Don't just jump into faith, walk in faith. Don't just jump into love and jump out and Love when it's convenient all the time. Loving God, loving man, loving the truth at the same time, keeping that cycle going. Think about what you have confessed. Think about what you truly believe. And now ask yourself the question, if this is true, if I really believe this, what should I do about it? And if you do something about it, It'll remove that fear. You say, well, I know that I truly believed it. Look at what it did in my life. There's evidence that I believed it. It's not just words. I really believed it. It actually came out in my life. There's proof of it. Pastor, I'm doing all that I can with what I know. As God teaches me, I put it into practice to the best of my ability. Friend, according to 1 John 4, that's all God requires. That is you perfecting your love. You're doing as much as you can with the truth that he gives you. You can, just for a moment, watch this. Some of you a little tense here. Because <sighs> you're looking at that saying, okay, that's what God expects. That's the example Christ gave. I'm gonna follow that example. That's the best you can do. You say, pastor, I still have some fear in my heart. Something in me just says, oh, I'm not sure it's right. Then, then look through what we've discussed today. Comprehensive, completing the cycle, carrying it out. See where you're lacking in your love. Work towards perfecting that and watch the fear disappear. It'll be replaced with boldness and confidence because you're doing it God's way. Let's all stand if you would, please. Heads bowed and eyes closed. Heads bowed, eyes closed, some musical play. We've talked about perfecting your love. Perfecting your love.
But as we've seen today, this cycle starts with you knowing and believing the love that God has shown us. We love Him because He first loved us. So my question for you this morning, have you accepted what Jesus did 2,000 years ago on that cross as the payment for your sins? Have you personally looked toward God and said, God, I don't deserve it, but I know that you love me because of what you did by sending your son, and I accept it. I'm going to let you love me. I'm going to trust you and you alone as my Savior. That's where it starts. That's where this relationship with God starts. Until you go to the cross and accept what He did, there's a reason to fear. You accept Christ and a lot of that fear will disappear. But it doesn't stop there. Many of you this morning, you have accepted Christ. There's a cycle. Look in that cycle and see where, where can I improve? Where can I take the next step? Let me do as much as I can with what God has shown me up to this point. God, help me to love people the way you love them. That's what God requires. <clears throat> the Bible says this is His commandment, that we should believe on the name of His Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another. Do you see the cycle? Receive Christ. Now start showing that love to others. Say, Pastor, I believe it. Okay. Hope you do. That's a big confession. If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God hath raised him from the dead, you're saved. Now it's time to start acting on what you believe. Then you can achieve that full assurance, that boldness. Yes, I'm saved. There's evidence of it. I'm walking in love. I can see it. Others can see it. This is evidence that Christ is working in me. I'll close in prayer just now. But if any of you, maybe before you leave, say, Pastor, I got a couple fears in my heart. I want to make sure they're dealt with. I'm not sure I'm saved. If you have questions about that, please feel free to find me after the service. I'd be honored to try to help. Father, thank you so much for manifesting your love toward us. God, it changed my life. And it's not done changing my life. Lord, the more I learn about you, the more I, I learn about love, the more I'm able to love my family, love my brothers and sisters in Christ, love my enemy. God, I want to grow in you, which means I'm going to have to grow in love. Teach me, teach us more. And Father, for those 
for anyone here today that has never allowed the love of Christ to sink into their heart, might today be the day that they accept that love. Help us throughout this week, Lord, to go through the cycle, to complete that cycle over and over again. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.